The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and participants during this episode are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the American College of Physicians, the editors of Annals of Internal Medicine, or the institutions that the speakers are affiliated with unless so identified. All relevant financial relationships have been mitigated. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash on-call. Particulate matter, air pollution, is a very provocative thing to the cardiovascular system. The American College of Cardiology calls air pollution a modifiable risk factor. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call features an article titled Environmental Health, a Physician Paper from the American College of Physicians. It appeared October 2022, accompanying it, Environmental Health Translating Policy into Action, printed in the same issue. Joining us on this podcast are the editor of the editorial, Dr. Emily Sine, who's an associate professor in the Department of Environmental Medicine and Public Health at the ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City. She's a clinician at the World Trade Center Health Program and a researcher focusing on the climate crisis, human health, and healthcare delivery. Also, Dr. Suja Matthews, a co-author of the policy paper, who's executive vice president and chief clinical officer at Atlantic Health System in New Jersey. She's also chair of the Health and Public Policy Committee of the American College of Physicians. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast, Emily and Suja. Environmental health is very important. Some things we can do something about in the short run, some things we can do something about in the long run. But your paper really, that Suja is one of the authors of, really addresses the impact of environmental factors on patient health. And we need to understand what some of those factors are and what can we do at a local level? What do we need to do at a, a, a more national level or even a global level? And what I'd like you to do is go over some of these and have a conversation on a particular environmental factor, and then perhaps give us some concrete examples of how that may pertain to people in practice. So, Suja, why don't you start and talk about the paper and then have a sort of a question and answer with Emily? Well, thank you so much, Bob. It's really an honor to to be here with you and and with my colleague Emily as well. I'm really proud to talk about this paper. So as as you know, it's our policy recommendations on behalf of the the American College of Physicians that went through our usual process of of development, um, which is lengthy and robust. And what we uh, hope to accomplish with this paper and through this discussion and others is to identify and create a common body of understanding around the environmental factors that impact uh, impact health 
for our patients, for our communities, particularly focused on our marginalized communities, um, and understand here as physicians and as a collective body of physicians, we have an enormous uh, opportunity and, in fact, a responsibility to address these issues. Um, so the, that's a lot uh, to start off this conversation, but that's uh, from where I come and from where the, the American College of Physicians come into this conversation. Environmental health is uh, multifactorial. And so uh, we intend to address various aspects of the environment that impact the everyday health of our patients and our communities that we serve. So um, we're talking about climate warming. We're talking about water um, uh, cleanliness. Uh, we're talking about other toxins that are present in our environment and, and other factors as well. So it's the combination of those uh, environmental factors that we recognize have a direct impact on individual patient health. Emily. Thank you, Suja. Thank you, Bob, for inviting me to participate today. I, I commend uh, the American College of Physicians for uh, digging into this area. We have to remember that somewhere between 70 and 80% of the health of our patients is not determined by their genetics, but rather by their environment whether it be the communities that they live in, the air they're exposed to, the food they're eating, what sort of uh, cultural pressures they might be under. And I think broadening out our history and physical, if you will, of where our patients are coming from to environmental factors is critically important. And that's why I, I'm, I'm a big fan of the paper, uh, expanding these in a much deeper way into the medical community and very supportive of looking at ways that we can understand this better and what we can do in the clinic with our patients directly in the community at the hospital level, regional, national, global level. We should be thinking about this because this affects patient outcomes and it's not as acknowledged as it needs to be. Yeah, and yet, Emily, we see it every day at the bedside, don't we? We see it when we're um, uh, treating our patients that present with, with asthma as a, as a great example of, of the clear impact of the environment on one's health. So uh, we also recognize that the incidence of asthma is disproportionate among certain populations. And again, we mentioned before our marginalized populations that may in fact be more uh, exposed to environmental toxins. And at the same time, we see that they have a much higher incidence of asthma, even at the very young ages. So um, it really is something that comes uh, to the bedside. One of the things that the committee, your group who wrote the paper went over that I was very pleased to see was a discussion about air quality. And the fact that the current standards, the National Ambient Air Quality Standards, or NACs for short, may not be restrictive enough in terms of particulate matter, if you will. There are many parts of the country that are not meeting safe air quality standards. And when you talk about people with asthma, we need to remember that particulate matter, air pollution, is a very provocative thing to the cardiovascular system. The American College of Cardiology calls 
air pollution a modifiable risk factor? If it's a modifiable risk factor, we need to be actively modifying it. So I was really pleased to see that. For my own patients, I have patients who have rather severe respiratory conditions. I often advise them to put one of the little air quality apps on their phone and to check it before they go out. There are certainly times of day where they're gonna have a problem because the air quality is not, not good. I was pleased to see a lot of emphasis on air quality as well as water quality in the new recommendations, policy recommendations. Let me ask you a question about that because I really love that because we all take care of a lot of patients with respiratory problems. I've, I've seen apps that would tell me what, what the air quality was today and, and uh, I see it uh, changing. Can you be even more practical about how you actually have that conversation with the patient and what ranges do you tell them to pay attention to? And are they able to do it, especially those people who have to work to make them a minimum wage, for example? You're right. Uh, sometimes the technology is challenging. There are a lot of apps that are terrific. Air.gov makes an app. That's just one. I, I don't want to plug any one specifically, but then you advise them that when it gets into the orange range, they need to be very vigilant about their own symptomology and make sure they have all their medication with them. I have some patients who really can't leave the house when the air quality gets bad. I have some patients don't leave during summer months when you have a combination of heat and poor air quality, because then you've got ozone, which brings me to another thing I think we need to discuss. The paper focuses on all these different exposures, right? We talked about chemicals in the environment, heavy metals in the environment, poor air quality, poor water quality. In the environment that we're living in now, we don't have the luxury to focus on one exposure at a time. We have to manage multiple negative impacts on our patients. She mentioned climate change earlier on, and we're gonna see more complicated events from climate change. So the, the environment that our patients are living in has multifactorial environmental exposures that we need to be up on and learn what to do about. So yes, I do advise some of my patients and they can use the app, you'll be surprised. Once you sit there and download it with them, they get it. One question because uh, I'm somewhat ignorant here. When you have someone who is concerned about particulate exposure and they really need to get out, does masking help? No, masks are not recommended unless you are in an area such as a wildfire where PM2, PM2.5 would be very, very high. The CDC, as far as I know, I, I haven't checked it in a year or so, does not recommend masking for poor air quality days. They recommend avoidance. So for instance, if you know that you're uh, highly sensitized, you might not want to try to do your uh, physical activity during rush hours. You might want to try to do it later in the evening or early in the morning before you, you have those. So it's really about avoidance of these exposures uh, rather than masking. Great. Well, you, you mentioned drinking water, clean water, et cetera. Maybe the two of you could discuss that part of the paper also, because I know that there are certain places where it's pretty dangerous to drink water. Yeah, you know, I'll tell you that in the, the research that we conducted for the paper and and as, as mentioned in the paper, uh, the body of the paper itself, 
um, I was shocked uh, to discover that in my hometown of Chicago, there's still a number of of lead pipes that are transporting water. Um, uh, so I think that water, in, and obviously with Flint, Michigan, um, and the just uh, tragic uh, events that unfolded there and continue to, to take a toll on those lives, um, it's heightened our awareness of water quality and the need to ensure uh, clean water um, in, in, again, Bob, I have to say in a equitable way. Um, and that's, that's something I, I want to underline once more is when we're looking at environmental health, it's impossible, frankly, to not see the inequities that exist across our nation and how marginalized groups have been historically disadvantaged, whether we're talking about water quality uh, or air quality, particulate matter uh, exposures, et cetera. There's a real strong theme here that you know I would be remiss to not to underline. Emily, do you want to expand on that? You know, I'd like to say one thing about that, just in addition. You know, the healthcare workforce is the largest workforce in the country outside the U.S. military. And as we saw in the general population, in the healthcare workforce population, we saw that minority populations were hurt first and worst where the pandemic was concerned. More healthcare workers of color died of COVID or became sick from COVID than any other two, two times at least. And, you know, we might want to start with the man in the mirror. Our workforce comes from the communities in which they live. And thinking about it from a health system perspective, that's one area where we can be more active in our local communities, advocating to understand and improve some of these environmental justice issues. We're working in these communities now. Many of our employees come from these communities. Yeah, that's fantastic, Emily. That's fantastic. Thank you for that that challenge. And and I think as always, we we um, implore others to consider health equity in every decision. Um, but that's a great reminder that we should be, um, you know, first and foremost responsible ourselves. Um, from that perspective, but also in ter in terms of you know our our contribution to the environment um, and uh, healthcare contributes significantly to carbon emissions. So you know what are the changes that we can make institutionally and in the organizations that we work for, even in our local practices. Uh, where we can be, frankly, better citizens. So, Bob, you started off like, what can we do, right? What, what do we do as physicians? We talked a bit about some of what we can do at the bedside, that recognition and, and direct counseling around air quality, et cetera, for our most susceptible patients. Um, I also want to make sure we talk about the fact that we are um, strong advocates. We have the potential to be very strong advocates again, on behalf of our patients and the communities that we serve and, um, and op that we have this responsibility to, frankly, come up with position papers just like this one, and then use these, uh, you know, our positions to uh, inform the advocacy work that we do both locally and nationally. One of the things that I heard you say, Emily, is that what we, we need to be able to talk to patients. 
when we believe that there are environmental factors that are impacting their health. And I know you have experience with that. So perhaps you could talk about how you have that conversation and when you ask and how you ask about their living situation and try to figure out whether they're in a, an area that uh, has bad water or has more particulate matter and give us some clues as to how we can include that in our social history. Sure. One powerful question that you can ask patients is how close do they live to a roadway? People who live close to roadways have much worse health outcomes than people who don't live close to roadways. Understanding that about patients can tell you about their risk factors. And, you know, we can't move people, but we can recommend lifestyle changes that can help protect them somewhat. Right now, I'm working on approaching patients who need to make lifestyle modifications through health coaching. In other words, looking for ways to choose one or two health goals for patients who are in risky circumstances like living close to roadways that might improve their overall health status. So if it is as simple as incorporating, maybe for the first time ever, some vegetables or some physical activity away from the roadway, something really simple and helping them improve their underlying risk factors so that the conditions they find themselves in the community are not as able to affect them. That's one way. But the other thing I will say, she mentioned something I wanted to add into, which is our own healthcare footprint, the toxic and carbon footprint of healthcare delivery, which is huge here in this country. And I think maybe we should talk about how we go about reducing our own toxic waste, our own carbon footprint. And I have some thoughts on that if you want to discuss that more in depth, because I think these things go hand in hand. Well, I think that's exactly one of the things that we want to get out of this uh, discussion. So why don't you continue? Right now, healthcare delivery in this country is responsible for about eight and a half, maybe 10% of all greenhouse gas emissions in the country. You know, how, how do we prepare our facilities for climate impacts? And I think one way we might think about doing that is require that health facilities both measure and manage all their, their carbon emissions and their waste, and also undertake thorough assessments that use climate modeling that can help determine whether or not there are areas that might in five years, 10 years, not be habitable. A recent study looking at health facilities up and down the Atlantic coast and the Gulf of Mexico identified many, many facilities that are in very risky areas as sea level rise. So I think we need an all-in approach and an acknowledgement that this needs to be part of healthcare planning is acknowledging our waste and admissions, managing it, and also looking at threats from climate and the environment to bolster our healthcare infrastructure. So you stimulated me to ask a question. I hope it's not too controversial, but it seems to me, and I live, uh, as you know, in, in Alabama, which is a very rural state. And when I go to big cities, I seem to see a lot more smog and things like that. Are there any studies that look at the big city itself as a risk factor uh, compared to a rural environment in terms of environmental or am I just making something up? Well, you live in Alabama, 
Alabama is a hot state. Is that what you mean? That kind of thing? No, I'm I'm talking about when I when I go to a big city. There, number one, there are a lot more cars. There's a, a lot more people driving. Uh, you know, when I go over to Atlanta, it's there are six lane highways. That can't that cannot be good for the environment uh, to have that much traffic. Are people who live in the inner cities uh, of big cities at more risk than the same demographic who lives out in a rural area? Well, there might be differences there, but one question you might want to ask yourself that might be useful is, what are the health outcomes of Alabama relative to the rest of the country or any particular state? That would give you a good idea. Now, we're talking about environment and climate change. Everybody's going to feel these environmental catastrophes to some degree. It's going to be worse in some places, no question about it. So it's really about localities. But health outcomes, I think we have a pretty good idea about how health outcomes are in different states. Yeah, Bob, I think, you know, you're, you're asking your question, I think, about sort of automobile emissions and other um, industry emissions that you might see in a big city that are very different from a rural environment. Um, but if we step back, uh, it's, while that might be true, environmental health is also addressing other types of uh, exposures. Again, we, we've already addressed water, but other toxin exposures. Um, so I think I think it frankly it depends uh, your experience and your your exposures, your overall the impact of the environment of all aspects of that environment will vary. Um, um, but what is not in question is we are all each one of us affected by our environment, that collection of, of exposures. Let's finish up with. I'd like each of you to come up with two or three most important actions that you would recommend our members consider uh, over the next two to five years. Well, I'll, I'll go first, uh, Bob. I think, um, you know, my uh, bent is always towards the macro, it tends to be towards the macro, I should say, and, and our opportunities to be advocates as physicians individually and also collectively. So I think what I would say uh, an important next step for us as physicians is one is uh, recognizing that these effects are, are real and impacting our patients every day. Second would be to speak about this to one another and you know, to our colleagues, um, speak openly about this to our patients um, and begin this conversation. And then I'll end and say that um, our role as advocates uh, is tremendously important. So I think that, again, collectively and speaking to legislators and, and other officials that are in positions to, to ensure um, safer standards, equitable implementation of standards um, uh, is, is key for us as physicians as well. Emily? I, I agree with everything that Suja just said, and I will add this that every physician is in an environment. They can assess specific risks to their areas and elucidate what local problems might be and address them through 
learning and through advocacy. Now, in terms of broader issues like air quality and water quality, all those uh, large scale things need advocacy, which is why I think the paper is so important. But we can advocate from the bottom to make sure that the top down solutions occur. So anything that you can do to uh, you know, advocate for broad solutions to environmental problems, whether it be at the state level, regional, local, national, will help everyone. Thank you both for joining us on the podcast, shining a light on uh, this important policy paper and your wonderful editorial, Emily. And uh, I hope people learned quite a bit and we'll go back and read the policy paper and the accompanying editorial. Thanks so Thank much. Thank you very much. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. We had a very uh, interesting discussion about the impact of particulate matter and how one might counsel patients to avoid days with high particulate matter, especially in those areas uh, that have that form of pollution. We also had a very nice discussion of understanding our local water supply and whether or not there might be toxins associated with that. And in, in particular, there are some cities where there's still lead pipes and patients could be exposed uh, to lead inappropriately. And finally, Dr. Matthew and Dr. Sine urged interested uh, members to advocate uh, at both a local and a national level for policies to improve environmental health. We thank you for listening to our podcast. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash on call.